Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what's your go-to lullaby? you still do lullabies? Sure I do. Yeah? Yeah, and I do it in this kind of like jazzy way because I can't stand this lullaby, but it has been introduced to my daughter. Rockabye baby in the treetops when the wind blows that cradle will rock when the bow breaks that cradle will fall and hey down will come baby cradle and all. Do you find that this is too jazzy for a go to sleep song? Yes, but I feel like it negates the weirdness of that song. Does it? Yeah, it yeah. How, like how is this in any way comforting like there's a baby it's tied up in a tree <laughs> there it's just precariously hung there so that when the wind comes it just topples over and, and, and the baby just falls to the forest floor yeah you know i started thinking about this uh, when when you brought this up earlier i was thinking back to my own childhood and there were two songs that my mom would would pretty much use as the as default lullabies. One, Puff the Magic Dragon, uh, which is also sad. Which also does have this yeah, tinge of sadness, but not you know morbid sadness. It's just about hey, you're gonna get older, and then you're gonna you know some of your dreams are gonna die, uh, <laughs> you, and you're going to die, and you're gonna eventually gonna die. The Magic Dragon will live on, yeah, and look for another child to replace you. Well, I mean, I wouldn't go that dark on it, but essentially, yes. But the other one was All the Pretty Little Horses, which at first I was like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that one at all. It's just about when you you know wake, you're going to have All the Pretty Little Horses. But then I actually looked the lullaby up, and there's a, like the second verse that my mom didn't sing that's talking huh. about how there's a poor little lammy and w- with bees and butterflies pecking out its eyes until the poor lammy cries, m- cries for mama. Well... I think what makes that worse is that your last name is Lamb. So she's probably like, yeah. well, my kid's thinking that he's going to get his eyes pecked out, him specifically. Um, but you also know when Cormac McCarthy makes the title of yeah. a lullaby, his his book title, that is probably not serene terrain. Yeah, there's probably, yeah, there you go, because he's not going to write about something unless there's a little death or a lot of death woven into the tapestry of the subject matter. And that's what we see with lullabies. We see... We see a lot of darkness in the lullaby, as well as a lot of comfort, and uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons it makes for such a uh, delightful podcast topic because it's not this this straightforward cut out thing. No, yeah, because it really, yeah, it, there there are a lot of different layers to this, and one is again that universality of it. There are um, lullabies all over the world, and according to Zoe Palmer, who is a musician working on a lullabies project. At Royal London Hospital, she says that wherever you go in the world, women use the same tones, the same sort of way of singing to their babies. And she's seen this in the project over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and lullabies are usually in triple meter or six, eight time, which kind of gives them that char- characteristic rocking feeling to them or that motion. Yeah, that rockabye, but back and forth, mm-hmm. slow, soothing mm-hmm. tones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that's kind of interesting to see that in so many different cultures around the world. Now, the morbidity thing is also a universal. And we see both of those in the uh, in the fact that you can look back to 2,000 years BCE to ancient Babylon, and you find evidence of lullabies uh, used then. And it's a, a menacing lullaby in which a baby is chastised for disturbing the house 
um, the house god with its crying. So the idea is, is look, it's really t- it's time for you to go to sleep because if you do not stop crying, you will wake a demon and it will eat you. I love it, and I, I love <laughs> that it's inscribed on clay tablets. Yes, it's like one of the first lullabies. And it's this is I, I found this to be a suitable, um, you know, it's it's a it's it, it's suitable insight into the parenting mind. About, you know, when you're reaching that point with a child where you're like, I love you. You need to get some sleep. I need to get some sleep. If you do not get some sleep, demons are going to come for all of us. Well, I think it explains the popularity of the adult book, and I'm going to have to get bleeped out here, called Go the F*** to Sleep. Oh, yes. <laughs> which is a, this book for parents that kind of it ends in this refrain uh, every page, like say, you know, saying like, okay, like, goodbye, moon, good night. Yeah, it's, it's, in a way, it's kind of a take on the whole "Goodnight Moon" book, which, yeah. which I've I've read a thousand times. And I didn't get the "Go that Go the F to Sleep" book so much before I had a child, uh-huh. because before I was like, that seems a little harsh, you know. Even in you know, I know it's a joke, and I know it's for the adults and not for the kids. But I was like, I don't know about that. That seems a little, seems a bit much. But but then I had a child um, who. We brought back to the country with a completely reverse sleep cycle, mm-hmm. and I totally got it. At 4 a.m., yeah. you're like, ah, oh, that book is brilliant. Yes. I got it. Um, all right, so if you look at a lullaby sung by the Lua people in western Kenya, it starts with rock, rock, like rock by baby, but then it's it ends with the baby who cries will be eaten by a hyena, which is an actual possibility in that yeah. part of the world. Yeah, and certainly if you if you go back through time and think of our uh, you know primordial ancestors, the baby's crying because it's, uh, it's the, the the crying response is supposed to get human attention, uh, and arguably uh, is also there so that if the child dies too early, you're not going to be as upset about it. I've seen that theory proposed as well, uh, but it could conceivably mm-hmm. uh, clue in. Animal predators, uh, other human adversaries to your whereabouts. I was thinking about that too. That would be a telltale sign. So it's like, hush, hush, man, the hyena is going to come and get us. And then it made me think about when, when kids get older and they start playing hide and seek. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a way of teaching children how to become quiet when they, when they can understand this game of trying to escape a predator. Yeah. I feel like sometimes that's the only time, uh, my son is quiet is when he's, he's, he's running off to hide somewhere or, you know, so this is, be, you know, hide behind the door or whatnot. Yeah. It's a kind of interesting little hangover there of that. Um, but so it turns out though that not all lullabies are completely morbid. And Zoe Palmer, the, again, from the uh, lullaby project has said that some of them are telling you the history of a country. Or telling you how you should or shouldn't run your life. And she says it's kind of like advice columns for babies. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, you are, you're talking to this child, you're talking at this child, and on some level, you want to, you, know, you want to already start imparting important information to them. I mean, on a very basic level, you're, you're, you're dealing at them with, with language and, and the very basics of human communication. But already you're projecting all these additional wants and needs and expectations on this child that they should be familiar with their 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 country's heritage. They should be familiar with the uh, you know, expected uh, m- m- morality, etc. Yeah, and that just reminds me too that we do teach a lot of things with song, right? Our mm-hmm. ABCs are learned with song, and we've talked about this before. The power of song 
to instill a really strong memory in the brain. So it would make sense that this is the way that kids are getting information about hyenas and such. Yeah, I mean, in addition to the songs, I feel like so much of the language we end up using with with uh, with with young children, we're, we're using everything as kind of sing song. You know, like the first time you point out an elephant, you don't go, hey, kid, that's an elephant. You go, elephant. You know, you make it, mm-hmm. you're making the word into a song. And that makes sense, as we discussed in our, uh, our, our episodes dealing with, uh, with, with the power of music and, and how music works with the mind. I think that's, a, 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 that's part and partial to how we acquire language. Yeah. And, um, so it, it's not so, crazy when you think about this idea that lullabies have a kind of power beyond developing cognition in children or cognitive skills. Uh, There's a 2013 study published in the Psychology of Music Journal that showed that lullabies have really beneficial effects on the body. And the music study involved 37 pediatric patients at the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, and those patients had cardiac or respiratory problems. Now, the patients were between the ages of seven days and four years old, and each child was involved in three 10-minute sessions involving lullaby singing or story reading or a third control session with just no interaction. Then their physiological responses and perceived pain levels were measured before and after each session. So I wanted to cover just the, the mechanism by which they were measured because it's probably a big question mark, especially with a seven-day-old, like how do you measure pain? Mm-hmm. So their heart rates and oxygen levels were measured with non-invasive uh, device called a pulse oximeter. And then their pain level was measured on the Children's Hospitals of East Ontario pain scale, which is this um, really trusted behavioral scale used to assess pain in young children. So the CHIOP scale includes six categories, crying, facial, child verbal, torso, touch and legs, and scoring ranges from four to no pain to 13, which is the worst pain. All right, so we got all that out of the way. So now we know how how they did this. Uh, what they found is that the children's average heart rate had reduced from 134.1 to 128.7, and their pain rating had fallen from 6.21 to 5.64. So here's the thing. It was just the lullaby sessions that had this effect, not huh. the storytelling and not the control. Okay, so there's there's something to them, not just to to, to the interaction, but to the musical uh, interaction that's going on here. It's also crazy when you uh, when you think about the fact that an infant can recognize a lullaby heard in the womb several months after birth. So the the, the child is in the womb in utero listening to to music, mm-hmm. but hearing the lullaby that the mom is singing it, and then months and months later. It can it can recognize uh, "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." Uh, this was actually uh, proven out in a, a study at the University of Helsinki. Twenty four women during the final trimester of their pregnancies, half the women uh, uh, were played uh, the melody "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" to their fetuses five days a week for the final stages of their pregnancy, and uh, the brains of the babies who heard the, the melody in utero reacted more strongly to the familiar melody both immediately and four months after the birth when, compa- when compared to the control group that didn't hear the music. So the take-home here, the, the larger take-home outside of lullabies, is that fetuses can recognize and remember sounds from the outside world. But uh, but already we're seeing the soothing power of music even before it has, has exited the wound. And I think that's an important point because people don't typically think of the, the auditory qualities of the womb or, or fetuses absorbing that. Mm-hmm. But imagine if you were closed inside this 
this, you know, nice fluid filled room, almost like the, uh, the soaking, um, uh, I was going to say soaking tubs, but they're not that, the, uh, sensory deprivation oh, chambers, yes. right? And you had nothing but sound to orient yourself to. Mm-hmm. Then you probably would have this really strong relationship with those sounds around you and the sounds outside. This also brings my mind back to our uh, podcast episode on underwater sound and underwater music, uh, which is is not a, a huge area of music listening, but you do see people who get really into listening mu- to music underwater uh, because the, the way the, the sound waves carry in the water, how it uh, interacts with the skull, uh, is, is supposedly a very unique way to take in the sound. I'm sure that it's got to be a very soothing way as yeah. well, unless it's just like total headbanger stuff. But even that, in a muffled way, might be kind of nice. Yeah, like there's sort of the the, the ambient noise of the, uh, the, the one might experience in the womb. Um, and of course, you you more often uh, encounter this with uh, individuals who are say throwing a bunch of Mozart at their uh, their their still womb and prison child, or or some other type of music, thinking they're going to have some sort of profound impact. On the child to make the child smarter or or more inclined to like bluegrass upon uh, exiting the womb. And speaking of exiting the womb, uh, we've talked about this before, the fact that humans gestate for just three trimesters, which is pretty short in the mammal mm-hmm. world. And so some people have theorized that once the baby is born, those first three months are more like the fourth trimester and therefore uh, babies need to be comforted in a way that is more womb-like with the sounds and, and with the swaddling. Yeah, I've read that this is uh, due in part to our uh, bipedal nature, because when we made the shift from a quadruped to bi- to a biped, uh, suddenly we're walking on two legs. Uh, it changes the way that our pelvis is shaped, mm-hmm. which uh, narrows the uh, the exit route, the escape route for that uh, for that baby. So the baby has to come out earlier when it's right. smaller, and therefore, to a certain extent. All human babies are premature. So now consider true premature babies. And you really get that sense of how important it is to have that sort of womb-like exterior uh, refuge for the child. And if you look at lullabies and you look at preemies, you can see some really astounding information. There was a study published online in Pediatrics in 2013. It, it detailed 272 babies in 11, 11 different NICUs around the country. And uh, NICU is just a, an acronym for basically neonatal clinic mm-hmm. for newborns. And the babies were born at at least 32 weeks in gestation. And they were all pretty small for their gestational age, and they had different health issues, as preemies often do. Now, three times a week for two weeks, music therapists would play two-tone heartbeat womb sounds and other whoosh audio cues, which were synchronized with the baby's vital signs. And it was monitored by their um, breathing rate, their eye movements, and other monitors. So think about this. This is intentional sort of... Uh, gestational sounds that are synchronized with their bodies. Now, parents and therapists were also asked to sing a preferred lullaby called Songs of Kin, which I'm not familiar with, Okay. or Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, if they didn't have a selected song. Remo Ocean Disc, and this is a type of music device, was associated with the best blood oxygen levels and quiet alert states in the preemies. And sucking behavior, which is super important in preemies because they don't, they're, they're not quite there yet so that they can 
accept milk from the mother right. or, or even breastfeed. So the sucking thing is really important developmentally in, in preemies. And that was best with something called the Gato Box, which is, again, another kind of music device. Now, singing was shown to increase alert times the best, and babies of parents who chose their own uh, song had better feeding behaviors, and they consumed more calories compared to the twinkle babies. So this it doesn't say this in the study, but m- perhaps this ties back to this idea that um, those children became familiar with those tunes in the womb. Hmm, yeah. Because it, those are personal to the parents, to their experience. It also makes it sound like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is no parent's favorite lullaby. And yet kids love it. Yeah. They well, I think up. they love it because it's, uh, I don't know, it's easy to, to sing. It's, it's kind of like, uh, uh, Itsy Bitsy Spider. Kids love Itsy Bitsy Spider, but it's, it really doesn't offer much to the adult. I think it's because they couldn't coordinate their hands to it. Oh, yeah. The little, the spider going up the spout. And the same thing with Twinkle Twinkle Little Star because they use their hands to flash out the, the, sign of flashing stars, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the effect of lullabies on adults. All right, we are back, and we're going to talk about adult pregnant women. Yes. And them listening to lullabies. Yes, exactly. Um as it turns out, music therapy can reduce psychological stress among pregnant women as well. Uh, and this makes sense because pregnancy is a very stressful time. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a long, a period of long-term uh, periods of stress, anxiety, hope, fears, everything you can pretty much feel as a human you're going to feel. Extreme hormone changes as well. Ah, yes. Yeah. And so uh, we, we have an interesting study here. This was uh, from the College of Nursing at uh, Kaohsiung Medical University in Taiwan. They uh, randomly assigned 116 pregnant women to a music group and 120 to a control group. So it's uh, you know pretty obvious what, what's going to happen here. The uh, people in the, in the music group, they're listening to music. They're listening to uh, a lullaby CD that includes songs like uh, Brahms' Lullaby, uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, as well as stuff like a little Beethoven, a little Debussy, other little bits of mm-hmm. classical go-to-sleep music. And they, in fact, found that the music group showed significant reductions in stress, anxiety, and depression after just two weeks. Uh, and they used uh, three different established measurement scales on this particular study. Yeah, the scales are important. Just We won't go way deep into this, but just so you know how they kind of weeded this information out, they used the perceived stress scale, and they also used the state trait anxiety inventory, and then a third scale, which was called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. So they took those the three different uh, scales, and they tested them before and after. And what they found is that there were significant drops in um, in their scores when they were listening to music that particularly like the lullaby music and the mm-hmm. nature sounds and crystals tinkling in the background. Yeah, that's important to note too that it wasn't just classical music and and uh, traditional nursery uh, uh, songs, but also these uh, sort of soothing nature sounds and sort of ambient music. Yeah, and the control group just they had very tiny minuscule drops that just weren't really significant. So, of course, this would bear out this idea that the actual music therapy, they were just going to listen to this, would actually decrease uh, any thoughts of depression or anxiety, which is really important. I also wanted to point out that these 30-minute uh, music CDs had 
music that kind of mimic the the human heart rate, and we're talking about um, between 60 and 80 beats per minute, which I think is the key to a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of getting you back to the uh, relaxed level of uh, of human operations, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, <laughs> I was thinking about this, it's placing the pregnant woman inside the memory of the womb of her mother, in which they were 60 to 80 beats mm-hmm. per minute. Because, again, like, put yourself in the place of the fetus. If you're in there, what are you going to hear? What's going to be that strong signal coming through? It's the human heartbeat. Right. So that, I think, is the key to that kind of music becoming a soothing sort of oceanic quiescence that, that our minds can kind of just float on. And that takes us to this idea of electronic music is perhaps having the ability to embody this in one of the best ways that different types of music can. Yeah, I mean, the, the second that you mentioned the heartbeat sound, I started thinking of, of various pieces of music that I've heard that, that echo that kind of heartbeat uh, in, in one way, shape, or another. And also that sort of, that, that floaty feeling, that liquidy feeling, yeah. that, uh, and, and, and sort of the muffled, uh, ambient noise outside of the womb. I mean, you, you do hear that a lot in, uh, in, in ambient music and in music that has a, a sort of ambient DNA. Now, this is from Pop Matters. This is a website in the article. It's called The Science of Sleep, The Electronic Lullaby by Timothy Gabriel. And he writes, the womb is a regular fallback cliche for the music writer, particularly one fumbling for a description of murky psychedelic sonics floating there, comfortably perched in a vat of amniotic fluid. The fetus's ear, not yet fully developed, is encased with liquid, surrounded by a protective layer of vernix, muffling the roughly 80 to 90 decibel chronic din of blood pumping through the mother's arteries. And he goes on to say that newborns, it would seem to him, are predisposed to noise music, specifically that of a fuzzy, warm, and liquid timbre, that liquidity that you just talked about. Which is also a reason why you you uh, see all of these uh, these white noise create generators, right, for, mm-hmm. for, for young children. Helps yeah. them sleep, creates a, uh, generally a more static, ambient uh, uh, environment for them to, to sleep in. But it's uh, still, in a sense, ambient noise music nonetheless. Yeah, and he says that this plays perfectly into with this kind of womb soundscaping because he says that it's a perfect venue for that womb simulation. He says ambient and experimental electronic music regularly incorporates sounds like running water, hums, drones, buzzes, noise, Tibetan throat singing, and other low-frequency tones, all of which value electroacoustic spaces similar in rhythm and overtone to the prenatal environment. Yeah, and, I mean, it's great for us adults, too. I mean, it works on, but, on, on all types of humans. Yeah. I, um, I subscribe to the uh, Hearts of Space uh, podcast. Uh, well, it's not really a podcast, it's a radio show, however you want to look at it, but uh, music from Hearts of Space, I think, a lot of NPR listeners are going to be familiar with that Bay Area artist, uh, all of it ambient in nature, ranging from sort of ambient classical music to mm-hmm. like space guitars to to you know electronic German space music, etc. And I'll almost always put a little of that on in the evening to sort of drift off into a peaceful sleep. Do you listen to it during your research as well? It depends on the research. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I go to a very ambient, uh, I always, I'm almost always playing music while I'm researching. And if it's something that's a, that requires a little more thought or is maybe a little spacey in and of itself, then mm-hmm. I may go with something more ambient and spacey. But if it's something just like, if I'm just 
you know, cutting some images for the, the website and stuff that doesn't require as yeah. much brain power, then I'm more inclined to listen to something that is, uh, more, more noisy and more, uh, um, more high energy. Now, this isn't to say that all electronic music is evocative of a gestational sound environment, uh, only that it really lends itself well to this. Yeah. And um, Gabriel had given an example, Brian Eno. He Mm -hmm. said, uh, Brian Eno's original idea of ambient music as, quote, wallpaper and Eric Satie's referral of his proto-ambient pieces as furniture music, another quote, indicate a tendency in the sound itself to provide a means for shelter for the listener. That's interesting. Shelter for the listener. To reproduce a home using oral space. It's not for nothing that Eno's own discrete music was allegedly administered in hospitals as a maternal aid to facilitate labor. It's comforting tones providing assistance for breathing exercises during the stressful period leading up to delivery. It's sound as security. Yeah, Brian Eno, I think, is a tremendous uh, example of, of this sort of thing. As like One example that specifically comes to mind would be music for airports, which, of course, he wrote yeah. with the, the idea here being this is the kind of music you could play in an airport, a place of stress and, uh, and transition, and make it a little more peaceful for the humans that are having to navigate it. And it is a very soothing, uh, drifty piece. And you find that in a lot of, uh, a lot of Eno's music. Um, for my own part, I also see a little bit of that in the works of Steve Reich, uh, Terry Riley, uh, Peter Gabriel's Last Temptation of Christ soundtrack, uh, Sigur Rose, Boards of Canada, some of Aphex Twins' more uh, ambient uh, works, and uh, Mark Van Hone. So the question Gabriel brings up, which I thought was really interesting, is that is noise music or noisy music just a regression or infantilization? And it's you know, it's fair. It's like, are we going toward electronic music in these instances because we are needing that comfort? I mean, he throws me off a little bit when he uses the word infantilization. Because you don't want to feel like a big baby with a pacifier. Well, sitting. yeah, exactly. But at the end of the day, that's a very comforting place to be with your music, too. I mean, music, I, I think, you know, music should challenge you at times. Music should rev you up at times. But there's nothing like a piece of music that returns you to the womb or puts you in a very, uh, you know, drifty, spacey, womb-like environment. Should we listen to a little sample of, of what this might sound like? Yeah. Yeah. Here's an example uh, that I think uh, fits uh, pretty perfectly with what we're talking about here. This is Horizon Glow by Australian artist Option Command off the 2011 Horizon Glow EP released on King Deluxe Records. Uh, you can find out more about uh, about King Deluxe and this uh, particular artist at kingdeluxe.ca. So let's listen to this track and uh, and see where it takes us. What I like about that particular track and why, why I think it's a good example is that there is this driftiness to it, this uh, this ambient, disembodied feeling. Mm-hmm. But there is also a little bit of noise, a little bit of glitchiness uh, that are, that's lost in there, which you can easily imagine as being the uh, the muffled chaos of the outside world. Well, I was just thinking even the title Horizon Glow mm-hmm. has this idea of looking at this light from beyond that just sort of seems infinite and sort of you know, receding and melting outward. And yeah, a kind of motion to it. 
Well, there you have it. Lullabies, the science of lullabies, a little bit of the culture of lullabies. This, uh, this song that the, the mother sings to the child, born or unborn, that is at once soothing. It is also full of ideas, some positive ideas about what parenting is and what, uh, what having a child is, as well as a, a way to perhaps vent some of the, the more negative and realistic uh, ideas about what it means to bring this fragile creature into the world. Indeed, I like that idea of advice columns for babies. Yeah, yeah. indeed. If you guys have any thoughts on lullabies, we certainly want to hear them. Yes, you can reach us in all the usual places. StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, all the videos, the blog posts, etc. Uh, you can find us on uh, Tumblr, on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, where we are Mind Stuff Show. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded now that a number of listeners have written in over the years and mentioned that they listen to this podcast as in the evening as they're drifting off to sleep. So in a sense, we are a lullaby. Uh, full of uh, inspiring and cautionary information, and and perhaps our voices are soothing as well. Advice columns for your subconscious. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's probably fitting that uh, that as we uh, spiral everything out here, we should also close with a little bit of that uh, that uh, that track, Horizon Glow by Option Command. And Julie, is there a, a means that the the waking listener can get in touch with us. <laughs> Indeed. In fact, it just occurred to me that if you have a strong idea about a lullaby, one that you really like or one that you think is just terrible or, or just so dark uh, that you want to share it with <laughs> us, let us know. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.